everyone, and welcome back to Purple Noon Podcast. I am Stephanie Conti, and I am here joined with my best friend, Savannah Lanause, and best friend number two, James Marsh. Hello. Well, that is a very nice introduction. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's, It's lovely to be back. Yes. So uh, for those of you who have been listening for a while, James was a lovely guest on our podcast about what seems to be debatable two to three years ago, maybe forever ago, maybe since the dawn of Purple Noon, whatever it may be. But finally, and we've been kind of talking about this for a while and some things were coming up, but finally we are back and we're here doing a collab and it is so nice to have you back, James. Oh no! It's my pleasure entirely. I'm, I'm, you know, been thrilled to see how the channel is is continuing on, how your podcast is gaining traction, trying lots of different things, and uh, to be able to come back and talk to you again is a real pleasure. Excellent. Well, for those of you who may have not um, have listened to the first uh, episode where we brought James on and everything, um, James is a uh, a film critic. Um, located in Hong Kong, who so graciously like reached out to us on our early Twitter days when we were first starting out and really reached a connection with us. And, and just, you were like the ultimate hype man in the beginning. <laughs> oh, like we sure. were just like, in the, and like this is before, you know, we were talking about this before Twitter hell occurred. Um, but like, we were like, oh my God, someone verified, verified. We were like, oh my God, someone <laughs> commenting like we were totally freaking out and stuff and um yeah like it was such an honor to be able to connect with you because it was like like I remember me and Savannah going we made it we did it so quickly too we made it it with someone who actually does this for a living and so it is so cool that we kind of have you in our court and um you are mentioned in every single episode still at the end you are you know the homeboy james you know that that is your your beloved title over the last few years for being such a big purple moon supporter so of course just thank you for that oh no no my pleasure my pleasure. i live for that that mention every every episode <laughs> You just see a new episode scrolls to the last 30 That's seconds it. of the I'm podcast. Like, did, they, did they forget? I bet they've forgotten. They've moved on. They've, they've passed that now. And then there, there I am again. I was like, oh, that means it all. <laughs> You're just waiting to hit unsubscribe to the Patreon. You're like, I just need a reason. I just need a reason right now. <laughs> I knew it was just a phase you were going through. But no, um, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, it's it's the least I could do just to get the word out and help you. You know, it was actually, if I remember rightly, it was actually... Uh, a tweet from David Blakesley that I I saw first. Yes. Uh, and yes. he was like, check these two girls out. You know, they're doing something new and exciting. And so I clicked the link and have been a fan ever since. It's as simple as that. Awesome. And shout out to David Blakesley, also friend of the show. Um, also longtime supporter too. Um, but it's so interesting how like we were all able to like be connected. And it seems like within like one week, like we had a connection with you, with David and everything like that. So it was just so, so cool. Um, and yeah, like just once again, happy to have you back now with um, now before we get into the movie because mm. of the times and everything like that. Right. So the day we're recording, this is August 22nd. I have to know. And what were your opinions on Barbie and Oppenheimer? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, (laughs) That came out of nowhere. Okay. (laughs) And to be fair, Savannah has seen both. I I have have not seen either. Oh, okay. 
Okay. I'm going to see Oppenheimer this weekend, so just so I, I'm I'm kind of she's told me what she's thought and stuff, but I, I'm really curious as to what you thought about both. Okay, fine. Well, the, get the easy one out of the way first. I mean, Oppenheimer I thought was great. It it sort of I think I fall squarely into that demographic. You know, straight yeah. middle aged white man. It's just like <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> Oppenheimer tick. That's that's the audience. No, I thought it, I thought it was great. It's it's these. Um, Christopher Nolan really maturing as a filmmaker and a storyteller. You know, I think it's the first time that he's tackled, well, he'd done Kirk, but that felt that it wasn't really focused on one particular character. This obviously true story, biopic, historical figure, flawed historical figure. I thought he tackled all of those elements incredibly well while still infusing the movie, you know, with his very unique storytelling structure time structure visual palette sound design you know it all kind of seemed to come together in this sort of really sort of beautiful cacophony of uh you know of of an experience an incredibly overwhelming experience i saw it in imax and then i went back about three days later and watched it again and my friend i went with the second time really enjoyed it but he was like really you saw that three days ago and you're coming back to see it again that was that was a lot and I was like, yeah, but it was it was so immer- immersive, I thought, and so powerful. Uh, Killian Murphy's amazing. I I put money on it right now. Robert Downey Jr. is going to win an Oscar. Uh, not you know, and it's and that's not just because he's great, but it just all feels like the stars are aligning for him at this mm-hmm. moment in his career. Mm-hmm. It just feels like a safe bet at this point. Uh, but I think it's going to do really well. Uh, yeah, so I'm very very happy with that, and I think it's one of the best films I've seen this year. Barbie. You know, yeah, really, really good, hugely ambitious, you know, very funny, particularly all of the Ken stuff. <clears throat> yes. You know, the patriarchy, very easy target, but that just means it's ripe for ridicule. And the jokes came thick and fast, and every single one of them, I was just like, yep, guilty, yep, yep, sorry, yep, okay, okay, that's funny, that's really good. And you can't help but just be like, okay, they've got this really squarely on the nose. I feel that when it came to sort of addressing necessary change and, you know, appreciation for women within, you know, to, to push within the patriarchal structure, I felt that the film obviously realized this is the important bit. This is the bit that we need to get right. And mm-hmm. it felt a little bit kind of over-workshopped to me, to the point where they ended up kind of hammering the point home a little bit too much. It, that um, is exactly what Savannah told me when she agree. saw it. Oh, okay, yes. okay, 100%. and you can see how you can see how it must have happened in the writers' room. I mean, they're like, okay, jokes at the expense of men, and everyone's just throwing the gags out. And at the end of the day, they don't care how people feel about those jokes that they're making. You know, they know they know that they're funny. They're going to get a laugh, and if it hurts the boys' feelings, good, it's supposed to. <laughs> you know, albeit in a playful way. But when it comes to the messaging for the female audience. You can tell they really, really want to get this right, and so they've probably gone over it, more, you know, many, many more times, re- redrafted it to get it exactly right, and the, and you end up just, you know, you know, kind of towards the end of the movie where they have to kind of stop and they give the speech about, you know, the um, expectations of women in a in a patriarchy and how this has to change it. You know, you have to allow for a woman just to be who she is rather than she's she's too pretty. She's not pretty enough. She's this. She's that. She's you know, and they have this whole long speech. But the movie has yeah. to actually kind of stop 
for them to say this speech. And then within the narrative, they say, okay, now you go up to everybody you can find, stop them and you give them this speech. The the jokes at the expense of the men felt far more organically woven into the fabric of the story for me. And a lot of the messaging, the sort of the feminist messaging, if you like, uh, felt like the, the, the movie had to had to sort of grind to a halt for them to go, okay, there, there's something I need to get off my chest. There's something I need to say. And yeah. so when you're actually watching the movie, it it kind of uh, it doesn't flow quite as organically as uh, as the jokes in the first half. Now, do you think like and and this is just based off because one thing for me with Barbie that like even when watching the trailer, I was like, I don't know what this movie's about. Like I was mm. genuinely, I would watch some of the early release trailers and I'm like, okay, it's Barbie, but I don't get what it's about. And then as like you know. People have watched it. I've seen the memes. I've seen more videos and stuff like that related on it. Um, do you think that maybe some of the male characters like Ken, like Ryan mm. Gosling's Ken, um, are maybe a little bit better developed? Because I always see if anyone's talking about Barbie, they're talking about Ryan Gosling's performance, not so much Margot Robbie <laughs> and some of the other leading you know, ladies within the film. Well, I don't think it's the fact that the um, that the Ken is more developed. I think it's almost I think it's almost the opposite. I think it's that he's so one note that he can be fully realized within like one gag, if you like. You're like that is Ken. That's all he is. He's he's simply this dumb guy who just assumes that everything's going to go his way. Gotcha. Okay. Whereas. I, you know, obviously Barbie as a character is far more complex. She's the one who's having this real revelation about who she is and what her place is in society. And so therefore it, uh, it, it is a more complicated uh, portrayal and a complicated journey that she's going on. I mean, everything that the movie says, I agree with, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you know, everything that's in there is, is great. And, I liked also the fact that they take an opportunity to really examine Barbie as a as a doll, as a child's plaything, and the legacy, and whether it's been good for girls or bad for girls to have this uh, role model, if you like, in their lives. And I think all the stuff that the film discusses relating to the influence of Barbie, the the uh, the totem, if you like, uh, was was great and really well kind of thought out. Uh, I just think at the end, of, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's it just needed to rein in a little bit, just be a little bit tighter, just, you know, make make one point, move on, move on to the next, move on to the next. Uh, and it was given a little bit, you know, like so many movies today, it was too long. So many movies have this uh, problem of being too long. And the mm-hmm. irony of seeing it as a sort of double bill with Oppenheimer is that Oppenheimer, which is an hour longer, isn't too long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that felt like the right length whereas barbie at two hours and a couple of minutes or whatever it is felt too long and i think that's uh that's gonna go against i mean obviously it hasn't gone against it at all mm-hmm. you know it's this behemoth that's made what over a billion dollars uh but i think in the, you know and i think in the long run that those problems are going to be less of a problem because people are going to be watching it at home and they can just pause it walk away you know whatever and the pacing of the film's not going to be uh so much of a problem so yeah. What will be interesting is to see what happens next. 
They've, you know, they've already said the studio obviously is going to want to make more Barbie oh, movies. Oh yeah, the Mattel universe, right? Yeah, we got Polly Pocket coming, guys. I Literally. can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Polly Pocket. I think they're doing a Hot Wheels movie. Yep. I like right. they they really went Marvel comic universe with this type of stuff. It's kind of crazy. I mean, good for them. I mean that they them realizing that they can kind of take what's already been made and just convert it to another medium genius it's going to make them so much money but i don't i don't i just hope that the execution is is similarly done to this level mm-hmm. I, I will say i the one the one thing i talk about when seeing barbie and oppenheimer is usually the fact that like i don't know if, if it was similar for you james or if, if you had the same thing there but when i went to the theater i couldn't believe how excited and like almost united everyone was like barbie when i tell you every single person old young was wearing pink like Mm. and so excited to be there and it was genuinely like a great movie experience i went to oppenheimer people were in suits and everybody was like yeah i had like four young men next to me when i would see with my husband wearing suits and everybody was dressed in darker clothing. And it was the funnest thing. Like, seeing both movies. I didn't see them back-to-back because, like, I didn't want to be at the theater for, like, 11 hours. But sure. I saw them in the same week. And it was so fun to have, like, a theater experience like that. Because Regar- I had thoughts on Barbie and how I felt about Barbie. And I really loved Oppenheimer. But regardless, like, I didn't remember the last time I went to a theater and being like, whoa, everybody is, like, super into this. Everybody is just just excited to be here. I'm excited to see any movie. I like going to the movies. But it was the first time where I looked around. I'm like, oh, like people are like making a day out of this. They're like picking outfits. Like this is a whole thing. And Barbie killed the promotion game. Like Barbie promotion was 10 out of 10. You couldn't go a day without watching TV and seeing something Barbie come up. Going into the store. Oh, Barbie hairbrush. Barbie nail polish everything became barbie and yeah. i think mm. like that's that's what movies got to do nowadays in order to really take in that you know and, and make money from from theater experiences i mean what's so fascinating about the whole barbenheimer thing is that it it wasn't conjured up in like a marketing department office somewhere that it was entirely organic mm-hmm. you know people just the people just came up with it themselves and thought oh this is amusing these two very different movies from rival studios are opening on the same day. Wouldn't it be funny if people went and watched both of them? Yeah. Because they're so different. And, the, and then opposites. it just, yeah. And it just took off and became a thing. I mean, it'll be painful, I think, to watch every studio's marketing department try and recreate that going forward. Oh my gosh. You, you know what they, the next you know one is? You know they're gonna. The next gonna one hurt. people were talking about online, it's Saw Patrol. It's the Paw Patrol movie oh, coming wow. out the same day as the Saw movie. So it's called Saw Patrol. Okay, that's actually that. quite good. Yeah, that that's also, I feel like that's, that's on the same level of absurdity. You know, with Barbenheimer, I think like the Paw Patrol and the Saul is is just like maybe like a little bit of a notch more on the absurd scale. Yeah, take your five year olds in for that double bill. That'll <laughs> yeah, that'll be tough. Mm-hmm. But okay, awesome because I'm I'm prepping myself to see Oppenheimer this weekend, and I kind of like, and I I I know I'm gonna like Oppenheimer. Yeah. I feel like everyone kind of knew they were going to like Oppenheimer and everyone knew that they were going to kind of like Barbie, you know? So I just, I just wanted to get your opinion because I had already heard Savannah's lovely opinion on it. 
and right. yeah, so okay. I'm excited. And plus, I'm seeing it on in the U.S. I don't know if they're doing this in Hong Kong, but it's like National Movie Day, so I'm seeing it for four bucks. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So that <laughs> I'm also very happy about that. Yeah. No, I don't think we do. I mean, they they have something similar, but it's not the same day, and uh, and it's because it, it can be cripplingly expensive to watch sort of IMAX movies here. They're oh pretty, my god yeah i saw brutal. um a, a, a studio ghibli film last night in theaters and like this is a movie that's been out for 10 years paid 15 dollars huh yeah paid 15 dollars for one ticket to see a 20 year old movie yeah really? which which one was it oh the wind rises and i was absolutely gutted i was not expecting the sad part at the end i left the theater oh, sobbing yeah, well, it ties in nicely with Oppenheimer, kind of. Yeah, I, I, I looked at I looked at my boyfriend and I said, this, "What what an incredible time to watch this movie yeah. right before Oppenheimer this weekend." So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was fitting. It totally was fitting. But like every year, they do like the Studio Ghibli at AMC. They do like every year, like the fall season and some of the summers. Um, they will re-air like Studio Ghibli, and man, like. It's just getting more, like, it was a packed theater. It was a packed theater, too. So, which is cool. I like when movies do, like, flashback cinema and stuff like that. Um, And I was telling Savannah that we're going to probably go see Howl's Moving Castle um, in theaters as well, too. So, I'm excited. But we were talking about how much of a behemoth um, Oppenheimer is. But we got to talk about the behemoth (laughs) that is a touch of zen. And no joke. IMDb advertises this movie as three hours and 20 minutes long. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not that long, is it? It's no, it's, it's two hours and 50 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of know why they say it's that long, uh, just to get kind of right into it, is that when it was first released back in 1970, 71, um, the financiers were so nervous about the fact that the director king who had made this huge movie that they released it in two parts so they cut it in half released the first half in i think 1970 and the second half in 1971 and if you remember the the sort of pivotal bamboo forest fight sequence in in the mid right in the middle of the movie mm-hmm. uh the first the first movie if you like ends when that finishes you know they finish the fight and then you see um yang the the young woman's character ride off into the sunset in a shot that doesn't really exist anymore uh and then it ends and then the following year when they release part two they do that whole sequence again because it's one of the best sequences in the movie and Mm -hmm. so it starts with the bamboo forest fight uh and then just goes on from there and so i think it's the doubling up of that scene it gives it the combined runtime of sort of over three hours yeah, and, and so for anyone who doesn't know, uh, A Touch of Zen is about a, it's described as a lady fugitive on the run from corrupt government officials is joined in her endeavors by an unambitious painter and a skilled Buddhist monk. Um, and like James said, it is directed by King Hu. Um, and I'm probably going to butcher these three names, but I still want to give credit where credit's due. Um, the three main leads of this role are Fang Su, Chun Shi and uh, Ying Bai are the three main um, actors and kind of like the forefront of this film. Now, I had never seen A Touch of Zen before 
you know, that this podcast, essentially, I hadn't seen it before. Savannah, did you have any prior experience with A Touch of Zen or anyone within the film or even the director? Yeah, so I had heard that um, this movie was a big inspiration for I think it was Ang Lee, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So that that's where I knew this movie from. But I had never seen any uh, scenes or or anything like that. I just I just heard about this movie from that. So, James, how did you get introduced to A Touch of Zen? Uh, Probably in a very similar way. Uh, I think I probably saw it about 20 years ago. So it would have been, you know, shortly after Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out. And I moved to Hong Kong shortly after that in 2001. And uh, because of the success of Crouching Tiger, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Hero, Zhang Yimou's Hero, the following year, uh, there became a sort of resurgence of interest in this kind of sort of classical, old-fashioned Chinese uh, wuxia, as the genre is called, uh, sort of epic, martial, big martial arts period epics. And so China was making nothing but these. And so inevitably the conversation turned to which are the best ones. Mm-hmm. And so I actually picked this up on a pretty poor quality old DVD where, and this is why I was able to answer your question about the runtime a few minutes ago, where it's, it plays the whole movie, but it plays it as two parts on the DVD. And so, uh, you know, just with a kind of sort of intermission in the middle. And so that was how I watched it. And I'd only seen it like that until I think it was Eureka, the British label Eureka, uh, released it on Blu-ray I want to say about uh, almost 10, no, 2016, they released it on Blu-ray. And then Criterion released it shortly thereafter. Uh, and that was an opportunity to see it again and see it in all its restored glory. And, um, you know, there is no denying that it's a lot. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's quite the endeavor to sit, to sit through it. It's, it's a long movie that seems to be in no rush to tell its story <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, but it was kind of like sort of King Who's time to indulge himself. You know, he had had a couple of hits because, I mean, just to give you a little bit of background on King Who very quickly. So he was born in Beijing to a quite a wealthy family. And then he moved to Hong Kong as a young sort of teenager on his own to make his fortune doing whatever he could do. And he, and he struggled from job to job. He was copy editing phone books at one point or something, and then got, got a job in the film industry. But, it was a long time until he started directing. He was a production designer, set designer, and then he was an actor. And he actually had sort of some fairly decent reviews as a sort of character actor in all kinds of different movies in the in the 50s. And then in the 1960s, he started directing uh, movies for Shaw Brothers, the great big sort of uh, uh, action martial arts studio in uh, in Hong Kong at that time. And had a big hit there with a movie called Come Drink With Me. Now, that is also a huge influence on Ang Lee and uh, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So if you've seen that movie, because that's that's about a young female warrior who, again, is on the run and she goes into hiding. And there's a big set piece in in an inn, in a big tavern, very similar to the sequence in the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon with Zhang Ziyi. And that was a massive hit. And then he he moved to Taiwan and made a film, uh, a Hong Kong co-production called uh, Dragon Inn which has been remade many, many, many times over the years since. And it's kind of like a Western almost. It's, it's, yeah. it's a bit like Key Largo. If you've seen Key Largo, the old Humphrey Bogart movie, 
It's a bit like that, where um, which is down in well in Key Largo, and a whole lot of different people are stuck in a hotel during a typhoon. And it turns out that some are good guys, some are bad guys. There's a gangster in hiding and all this kind of stuff. Um, Dragon Inn is a little bit like that. It's all of these different people with different agendas all end up in the same inn. And, uh, you know, everybody's lying to everybody. Everybody's at cross purposes and it all erupts in violence. But that's like a nice lean 90 minutes. That's really awesome. That one is out on Criterion as well. That is well worth checking out. That's the movie that really kind of turned King Who into like a huge uh, director, huge, uh, you know, with a huge reputation uh after which he was basically given free reign to do whatever he wants and he had always had ambitions to be something a little bit more serious make movies that were a little bit more lofty that dealt with you know themes above and beyond mere sort of tales of honor and loyalty and and, and all those kind of good action tropes and so he came out with a touch of zen which is well it's about all kinds of things really and it kind of <laughs> yeah, changes <laughs> remember just watching it with my boyfriend earlier today and going like like an hour and a half into it i'm like this is so different from when we first started there's a lot (laughs) going on here (laughs) it just it felt like with every hour i was watching like the sequel to a movie but like 10 years had passed and i'm like okay yeah yeah, yeah it's like i remember this person and then this but I thought that he was the painter and now there's mannequins. Like I just, I was trying to go through everything in, in chapters. It, it felt like someone would like crunched a TV show for me in like different segments and just like shoved it in my brain. And I'm like recalling it all, but watching the film, it was, it's a hefty film. It is, it, it's somehow like a little bit slow burning at times, but mm. so also overwhelming at points because of those not necessarily too much of sharp turns but like where it's like oh like we're continuing the story and here's a undisclosed jump in time and even (laughs) at some point like uh savannah had messaged me and she was like hey are you at this point and i'm like i think i am and she was like when did this come in and i'm like i have no (laughs) idea what you're talking about i this this hasn't even been introduced yet so it's it's so hefty i appreciate it it's definitely an epic uh for sure um but probably one of the most heftiest left turning right turning films i've seen in a while savannah did you i feel like savannah you had a similar reaction right i did i was very surprised because so the the beginning of the movie like i was like having a good time because i was i thought it was funny because it's like the mother and the son and the mom is like, when are you going to get a job and grow up and give me grandkids? <laughs> At one point, she's like, I'll die if you don't give me any grandkids. And I was like, ha, been there. I get it. <laughs> and then we're, we're 30 minutes later, we're somewhere else. We're like, I was actually very impressed with the way they were able to like layer this movie because I thought like there was like a little romance going on. There was choreography, you know, fight scenes. And then there's like a family dynamic involved. There's a political aspect and then there's revenge. I was very impressed how they were able to like turn the movie that fast to different things. So yes, I was definitely like, you know, I was trying to keep up, but I was also like, okay, this is really really interesting and it was also kind of cool to see how they were able to like shuffle everything along yeah i what re-watching it when did i rewatch it yesterday in preparation for this i'd forgotten how much other stuff <laughs> was in it other than you know because 
selling it to you ahead of time as, oh, it's one of the most influential martial arts films of all time. I feel I may have sold it, you know, done a disservice <laughs> to you a little bit because I'm sitting there watching it and like an hour in, it's like nobody's fought anybody yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a lot of, like you say, uh, you know, sort of lighthearted comedy to do with um, uh, Sheng Tai, the, um, the painter and the scholar who is... Uh, with his with his mother and and can't can't get a decent job and won't settle down I, and i love the fact that as soon as yang this young woman who's a fugitive from the law comes into the into town the first thing his mother says you should marry her yeah, <laughs> yeah. so well, we don't know anything about her he's like yeah but come on if you don't marry her then you know what what hope have we got and um it's it, yeah it's a long time until uh till all the people hunting her down show up and Sheng Tai has to sort of decide, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to help her. I'm going to def- help defend her. And then and we then also get- have like the blind character who is not really blind at some point. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and just then you seeing ha- that unravel was just like, it, it, it was just like, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden he's, he's like, I'm blind. Of course I can't see. And then uh, all of a sudden later, he's like, you know, I'm not really blind, right? It's like, <laughs> that was like a minute apart from each other too, you know? The whiplash, yes. Yeah, it didn't really serve any purpose. Not really. The, the fact that he was pretending to be blind, you're kind of like, okay. But also you've got that huge sort of central sequence where the plan is, let's pretend this place is haunted. And freak yeah. freak all these guys out, and it's like that's a bit of a reach, right? Yeah. But uh, he's like, no, 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 it'll be great. And you, and you, that's when you get this great sort of shift in Shang Tai's character, who up until this point has been incredibly sort of timid and bookish, and you know has displayed no heroic qualities whatsoever. And it turns out he's actually kind of like a master tactician. And although yeah. he, you know, he might not be very good in a scrap, he can plan out all of these incredibly intricate scenarios and booby traps and sort of turns this rundown fort into a, a haunted house essentially which uh, which pays off spectacularly but of course too and and okay so the character that you're referring to is obviously the painter in the version that i was watching he had a different name oh okay he was yeah, mr might... goo <laughs> I just kept, okay. Mr. Goo is what they kept calling him. So when you were saying that, I'm like, no, I know he's talking about the painter, but the movie I watched just kept calling him Mr. Goo. Okay, yeah, he's the character's name is Gu Sheng Tai. So Gu is like his, uh, oh, his okay. surname. It's his family name, but uh, it will just depend on the the subtitles on the version that you're watching. But that's okay. yeah, that's often a often a, a legitimate issue actually, is that the way that they're translated because a lot of these names are obviously phonetic. And even when the when the subtitle comes up saying something, often what you're hearing is not the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Because, and I think a lot of that is to do with in in Chinese, you don't use people's names very often, and you often just refer to somebody as wife or husband or big brother or cousin or friend or something like that, and so they will be actually saying um, wife, wife to to their their partner. Whereas the subtitle will come up and it will be like honey or even have their name or something like that. So you see a lot of that happening, which can be a bit confusing as well. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was just like, Mr. Good, like that was, that was missed. Cause like, I, it's just, and I see it on IMDb. Like it, it's actually like 
K-U, but in the subtitles, it spells it as, like, G-O-O, like, actual, like, goo, like, <laughs> like you know, like, slime right. goo. So I was like, oh, like, so, the, of course, that's stuck in my head. I'm like, his name is Goo. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and oh, yeah, with that sequence, it's, it's just, uh, I, I really liked that sequence because you really get a full kind of like you 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 can see goo realize what he's actually been roped into at that right. point yes yeah definitely and i think you know he rises to the occasion pretty uh, pretty uh, pretty well actually he, he sort of realizes okay this might be my uh, my purpose but then just as he's sort of comes to that realization you have the sequence where he's uh, walking through the fort the morning after and just sort of laughing away to himself maniacally at how how wonderfully it's all paid off and how all his booby traps have worked so spectacularly. And then the movie takes another like really sort of sharp turn with the introduction of the um, the Taoist monks, Abbot the the Abbot Hui Yuan, and Yang's decision to sort of go with them. And the whole third act takes this incredibly sort of spiritual turn. Yeah. That uh, again wasn't very. Uh, it wasn't signposted in the first half of the movie. No, and I think one of the things, like in that transition from, um, you know, realizing what um, Mr. Goo has like done, and like kind of realizing like the horror of that booby trap, and the reality is, is that oh, it didn't just scare away. Like there was bloodshed, people died, which is kind of funny, only because he steps over like forty bodies before <laughs> yeah. realizing that everyone's dead. Um, <laughs> I like how they purposely like do it. He, he sees the one body in like the home. And then when he comes out, we just see everyone dead, but it was already daylight and everything. So that was a little unique. But the thing that's uh, during that transition before it went to like the spiritual third of the film, um, was Savannah messaged me and she was like, where did the baby come from? And I wasn't <laughs> even at that point. I'm like, I have no idea what she's doing. Oh, and I'm like, oh God, how far away am I from finishing this? Because <laughs> I was like, baby, what baby? So, and even still, got to the point, finished the film. What happened? <laughs> Where did it come from? I felt I'm... like I was keeping up relatively well until the baby showed up. I said, oh, okay, we have to go back. And I had to backtrack. The only thing I can think of and was the fact that maybe it was like, her baby, their baby. It's their baby. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. <laughs> Savannah messaged me and she was like, "When do they even have sex in the film?" I'm like, Savannah, they just touch shoulders. That's supposed to be like, you know, there was a part where like he puts her his hands on her shoulders and it fades to black. I knew then and there what that meant. Oh, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's all you get. It, okay. It's it's game on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, and it's like you say, there are these sort of these sort of undisclosed sort of uh, transitions lapses in time you know that uh that happen throughout the film but yeah when she gets she gets pregnant and she goes off with the abbot to complete her training but also uh she makes the decision that you know the, the married life is not for her and she actually recognizes and understands that all uh mr goo or certainly all that his mother ever wanted was was an heir yeah and that's why she doesn't she doesn't even hand over the baby herself one of the other monks just comes down the hill and just dumps it on a rock <laughs> with a note that says, now you have your air, off you go. And uh, and I don't know that they ever really speak again, do they? They I mean, I think also in the didn't film. show any type of time lapse. Like, I just saw her, yeah. like, you know, performing martial arts. Then all of a sudden, like, he realizes, like, it, it wasn't 
pretty concrete if there was a transitional of time. I mean, there had to be. It just, I was like, was she doing all this while pregnant? Like, did I, I just, so too. I it, it was also it. so dark at some scenes. I'm like squinting at the TV. I'm like, I can't see anything. I know there's a fight scene, but I can't see anything. I really liked the fight scenes. Um, actually, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And also, I think it's, uh, what's House of Flying Daggers? It reminded me uh, of Absolutely, that as well. yeah. Um, yeah. So I really love them. I thought they were great. I know a lot of people will look at that and be like, oh, okay, well, that's... But I just the 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 sound effects and the flipping were so dead on. Um, so it was really cool to see that connection. I, I really enjoyed all the fight scenes, personally. Yeah, I mean, that's what the film... That's, you know, the enduring legacy of the film is not perhaps it's, it's storytelling, but it's, uh, it is the fight choreography and what what King Hu was doing because it was actually quite a sort of innovative uh, piece as well. He had come from Shaw Brothers from Hong Kong, which was, um, you know, which is a big film studio here. So a lot of the fight sequences, they were all shot on, on a set. And the style of those films was there wasn't much sort of editing or anything like that. And certainly wire work hadn't come into, uh, into the choreography at that stage. And they would just sort of roll camera and just, you know, rely upon the uh, the abilities of the fighters, you know. And, and a lot of the obviously the movies at that time, it was you were a martial artist first and an actor second. So, you know, you 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 became a leading man because you were the best fighter rather than uh, sort of someone like Keanu Reeves, for example, who's like just an actor who takes on sort of fighting roles in his movies. Mm-hmm. Um and so when he when he came down to Taiwan and he's making movies like this, he was trying something really different. First of all, he's outdoors, shooting a lot of stuff on location rather than in a set. Uh, I mean, that fort, for example, was purpose built for the movie. And then they waited a year for all of the foliage and the long grass and whatever just to naturally grow out. And so it became so sort of overgrown and uh, that all happened like for real naturally. And then they went back and like, okay, we can shoot all those scenes now. And, and that fu- really hones in on the fact that like you said earlier that he really got to take his time with this yeah. film and with the creation of it. And just to be like, okay, here's the set. We did all the scenes here. Let's come back in six months when the woods rot in and, you know, we can get a little bit exactly. and, and get there. And I, and I was so surprised to find out that this was even like, like sets like it is such and when you said like oh he had like a history in you know like a a production and and even i think you even said like maybe set design or something like that i was like oh that that totally makes sense because this was probably like one of the best looking sets that i've seen and even though like those fighting scenes were a bit dark at times one, I do think it was still like whatever light was available was used really, really well with all yeah. consideration. Yes. Oh, I think the movie is is gorgeous mm-hmm. to look at. If if nothing else, I think it's absolutely beautiful. You know, and the the Taiwan locations are stunning. You know, those the, the bamboo forests, the the mountains, and the and the the, the streams running through them, and the uh, the monastery up on the hill. All of that stuff is is absolutely sort of spectacular, and really was part of what made these films popular at the time. You you don't really get that kind of countryside in in Hong Kong, which is you know the other place where a lot of these uh, movies were being made. I mean, we've got we've got some nice hills out towards the border but nothing on the scale 
of what you're seeing in this movie. But also getting back to like the fight choreography, I mean, he was moving his camera a lot. He was reframing actors with it, you know, with his camera in ways that were innovative at the time. You wouldn't see them coming in so close like that and you wouldn't see them fast cutting like that. And having his characters obviously sort of diving and bouncing in and out of frame you know a lot of a lot of hidden trampolines and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then these impossible angles you know where they're like running up bamboos and then diving back down head first you know uh, things like that were wholly unique to his his style and uh really you could yes were a huge influence on on Ang Lee in particular but also you know other Hong Kong filmmakers John Woo Choi Hark all took a page out of his book uh even Quentin Tarantino you know, in perhaps a little more indirectly, but was definitely influenced by some of his uh, some of his uh, sort of technical aspects as well. Yeah, and there was one scene in particular, and it's like right before they're making that ghost trap that I was so mm. impressed with, and I just wasn't expecting because it was it it really didn't make a lot of sense to do this type of edit for you know, the story's time, or even for something like, you know, to come out of 1971. But when they're preparing the ghost trap, there is a scene where um, the scene is split into six different tiles. And we can oh, see yeah. like everyone and I was like, Oh, my God, like, that was so, you know, interesting to just see like a, a playful transition period like that, like within the movie being shown like that. And I, I thought it was so unique. And even like, me and my boyfriend were like, Oh, like, how do they do that? Like, this is film. Yeah. So how would it, how did they do this transition and things like, like, how did they, they, and we were thinking that they probably had to just cut six, you know, film cells and, you know, make it into like a little apparatus like that. But it was really, really interesting. And to see something like that. And even like, this is in the midway point of the film. Like this is probably right. like over an hour and a half into the film. And I can only imagine how far into filming in reality King who was when he decided to do like this little playful um, transitional period. So I really, really liked that. And I liked how you can tell that there were certain things that King who was just like, you know, let's, let's do a little play around with this, especially in those um, the, the, the fight scenes and within those very, unrealistic like footwork and like you said like launching off the trees and things like that and how he just got very playful with those type of scenes I, I really really enjoyed it oh sure yeah I mean it's not about grounding the story in realism it's it's about having you know a lot of fun and you'd only see that you know go on even further when wire work became like a big thing you know and you, you see characters literally sort of flying around and dancing up walls and across roofs and what have you. you know. It's not about them looking realistic. It's just about uh, ex an expression of the fact that these guys are so good at what they do. So in touch with the kind of the chi, the, the force, the, you know, the sort of almost magical forces that only the true martial arts masters discuss, you know, can tap into that it transcends, you know, what the, what the human body is capable of. It's kind of like, uh, you know, sort of superhero lore in that, in that regard. It it's, actually it's... reminded me of, of Big Trouble in Little China when they're having like oh, the well, fight sequence sure. at the end and like, they're just launching off the walls and everything and they're fighting and they're moving their swords in the air and stuff. Like it reminded me of like that level of extravagance and stuff. And of course I know that they probably took inspiration from films without like a doubt. Um, but it was cool. I was like, Oh, like this totally feels like, like a key, like a little bit of big trouble, little China. And, you know, realizing that probably took inspiration from this was pretty cool. 
Yeah. I now, mean, spe- the, sorry, sorry, sorry Savannah, ahead. go ahead. Um, no, I was just saying the female assassin seems to be like her character is the blueprint from for whatever else came out. I mean, she even reminded me of Lady Snowblood, and I wouldn't be surprised. Obviously, I know it's two different countries and stuff, but Lady mm-hmm. Snowblood, any really like what else, what other what else did I say? Uh, the hard daggers, a crouching tiger. There's another movie I can't think of right now, but she reminds me of the archetype that would become sort of the female assassin or like lead warrior female warrior in all these movies so that's also really cool because like as i was watching her i'm like oh even acting wise looks wise she really does remind me of like all these other women in the films oh sure i mean that was something that king who did a lot as well i mean he, these three big movies that he did come drink with me dragon in and a touch of zen all have a young female protagonist yeah who is the the expert fighter played by three very three different actresses um, and actually in Come Drink With Me the young actress who plays the lead in that is called Cheng Pei Pei who plays the old evil woman in uh, Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon oh very cool you, you know the, the villain if you like who's behind it all and uh, is, is trying to sort of control uh, Zhang Ziyi's yes. character Yeah, that's Cheng Pei Pei who plays the lead in Come Drink With Me so she is an alum of, uh, of King Hu's films so but cool. you're absolutely right. And I, I don't think it is a, a coincidence that films like sort of Lady Snowblood and, uh, and, and the like, you know, it was, they were all coming out at the same time. It was all in the early seventies. And I think they, there was a lot of interest in just putting forward, you know, strong, strong female characters in these, uh, in these action movies, just to sort of mix it up a little bit, make it more interesting. You know, when they're churning these out, you know, audiences get pretty tired of, pretty quickly of seeing just the same thing over and over and over again and so it's like okay well you know let's put a pretty girl up front give her you know give her a sword and have her kill everybody (laughs) uh it it works (laughs) you know and um you know it obviously helps that they're incredibly accomplished martial artists as well but uh yeah no i think it's it's all coming from the same thing and they were drawing a lot of their inspiration from each other as well you know king who's movies drew a lot of inspiration from the same samurai films that had influenced Lady Snowblood. I think they were both looking at uh, spaghetti westerns in terms of how they frame action sequences, how they show, uh, you know, how they stage shootouts and duels and standoffs and that kind of thing was all, uh, you know, they were all borrowing from one another. And it was, they had just as much access to Western movies as, uh, as they did to uh, their own stuff as well. So make no mistake. Yeah. They were, everybody was watching everything at that time and uh, all being just as influenced by it as they are today. Well, and one aspect that I also noticed in touch of Zen that I, I did see in lady snowblood and, and similar films is, and I def- definitely think it's for the time and also for both kind of cultures. Um, this, the idea of ghosts coming into play. And yeah. I feel like this movie, like, harbored and really cultivated like oh yeah like we started with um you know um goo in the beginning like before he even meets um the female lead uh he starts putting like a paper on the wall and it's essentially like to ward off ghosts and then all of a sudden she shows up and then now they create the ghost trap and everything and then we have that ending with abbott and so it's it's very much the 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 reoccurrence theme of ghost 
is something that just came up a lot. And it made me like question. I was like, is everyone here just the ghost? Is everyone just <laughs> fighting here? Like just a ghost or is this person a ghost? And like, I was just like pointing fingers. I was like, oh, they're all ghosts at some point. Like it was just um, a huge theme that I felt like was just carried throughout the entirety of the film. And, and similarly, like with structuring, you know, the female leads of these types of movies, they make them very ghost-like, not only in terms of like appearance, um, but also in terms of like the the mysteriousness and how they just show up and, you know, things like that. So um, with, was there a, I guess, was I right? Were there ghosts with Abbott potentially and things like that? Like, what are your thoughts on that, James? Well, there's definitely, um, you know, there's a strong belief in sort of superstition and that kind of thing that, that continues to this day, you know, and the idea of ghosts is very real. Uh, the belief in ghosts, very real, very matter of fact. Uh, you know, even today in, uh, in Chinese culture, there is ghost month uh, in the summer. It's a bit like sort of Day of the Dead you'd have in, in, uh, in some sort of Spanish cultures where you know, have essentially heaven or hell. They tend to refer it to, to it as hell rather than heaven. Hell op- opens up and, and the ghosts of your relatives sort of come out and it's a time sort of that you can intermingle and you can pay your respects. Uh, they do a lot of um, Chinese opera during this period and the front row is always left empty because that's where the dead people will sit and and just things like that. And you, you burn a lot of paper offerings. There's a, there's a big business in just creating sort of paper uh, models of all the things that you want your ancestor ha- ancestors to have in their next life, you know. So you'll see everything from like houses and cars to iPhones and iPads and all this kind of weird stuff that people are making. It's a kind of a dying art, but it still does uh, does continue. They'll make all these little paper uh, models of stuff, and then you burn those offerings as well as fake money as well, you know, just to give your ancestors something in the next life. So the idea that the that the two worlds are kind of constantly connected is very very real and so it's kind of why uh mr goo's plan of oh let's pretend this place is haunted and that there are ghosts everywhere is quite legitimate you know it's it's not uh beyond the realms of possibility that there would be ghosts and that people might actually buy it and uh and be legitimately scared by it and then it's also vaguely similar when you get into the the stuff with the uh with abbot hoy and the, the the sort of the Zen Buddhism element of it towards the end, you know, it is just, we are on a path. They believe in reincarnation. You know, this is just one step on a long journey and there are powers bigger than our own at play all the time. And that dictate, if not dictate, but actually can be, can be um, influential on every part of our daily life. Mm. And I think that the, the role of, um, Buddhism plays a huge, and I I didn't realize it until the end, um, where, and I could not remember this character's name, but where we have um, one of, like, I'll say villains who goes against Abbot and the other monks, um, and essentially it's it's the guy in the golden robe and then the two guys in the red robes, and yeah. there's a point where after, you know, betraying Abbot in a scene, where all of a sudden he gets like hit in the head by Abbott and all of a sudden everything goes to the negative and kind of realizing that there is supposed to be this thematic of yin and yang. And it kind of made me wonder was, 
uh, like half of the film, like the first part supposed to be yin and the other half yang, but especially with the way the filming changed so much. Like we started at a progressively darkened film, you know, and it just kept getting dark until the midway point. And then it, from there it lightened over, like literally lightened over the time. Like I finally got to see the full character fight scenes and things like that. So I'm, I'm wondering if that probably played also a huge role in the way that it was filmed and the way that it was paced and maybe also besides time-wise, why it was kind of split in half like that. That'd be a cool interpretation for sure. Yeah, no, I hadn't th thought of that and that fits completely. You know, I, li I like that idea that, because uh, it is, you know, about the characters slowly coming to sort of this realization. I mean, the movie literally ends with you staring into the sun. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's it's that bright and and sort of seeing the way and the path you know the monk literally if he's still the monk you know has he actually sort of transcended his physical form and become buddha himself in that final shot and he's pointing the way off um you know that's that's open to some interpretation but no i i like that idea i haven't heard that but yeah but that totally fits in with the themes of uh of yin and yang and uh you know the the material world versus the spiritual world and and all of that yeah i like that thanks yeah it was just something that like with the negative and, and everything and uh you know like just when that happened that kind of i was like oh like maybe especially when he started bleeding gold oh yeah. i was oh, like yeah. oh okay this is definitely maybe trying to have some you know deep connection with it and then i was like well even though Abbott wasn't presented in every single scene. Maybe it was still supposed to be like a, um, like a big theme of it all. Um, and like I like I just said, like I just noticed. I was like, man, this second half of the film is really bright. <laughs> I was like, everything's turned up here. Um, but yeah, like I I I thank you for that um, compliment. I appreciate it. No, thanks for pointing that out because that yeah that makes perfect sense. You know, it's kind of the blinkered perspective of the first half where you're, you're with Goo's character the whole time, you know, and he's living this very sheltered, very small existence in this tiny village, you know, where he's being henpecked by his mom. And literally he just goes, you know, he doesn't really go anywhere every day, you know, and his, his entire life is sort of in his head and he's, you know, he has dreams and aspirations, but he doesn't really go anywhere. But by the, by the second half of the film, it's, it's sort of, it's opened up the world so much on so many different planes of existence I mean, and as we were saying earlier about the sort of the meandering, almost uh, novel-like nature of the of the plot, you know, he's barely features in that final act. You know, when he's saddled with his baby, uh, he's not even really there for the, these final confrontations where the abbot has basically taken center stage, and he is the sort of the most powerful warrior, if mm -hmm. you like, right. uh, but does so with minimal effort. You know, he has transcended these uh these trivial um disputes if you like and he is on a higher plane of consciousness of, of enlightenment of being and is trying to guide everybody in the, in the right direction and yeah if you look at where we're at, at the beginning of the film and who we're following and where we are at the end of the film and who we're following it's come a long way <laughs> oh yeah very different like it, and just the fact that, you know, our fight scenes didn't happen until like an hour into it. And then we kind of just lose our main character along the way. Like he's, it's just like, okay, he's a dad now and he's in the forest. And, and that's just where we leave him for a bit. But it's, it's almost like 
it, it's almost like a way of like saying like, Hey, we're done with this character. Like we've learned yeah. his story, his new life begins, but we haven't finished with these two characters. And now we got to go back to Abbott and we got to go and figure out like exactly, you know, cause I feel like Abbott was just, you know, Abbott was someone that he was a monk and then he had his group of monks with him and kind of prevented um, turmoil at some point. They were like, oh no, you can't fight on this land. And then he unveils like his super cool um, martial art moves. And then mm -hmm. I was just like, okay, why are the monks cleaning up the bodies? <laughs> like, that was one thing I was like, shouldn't they be like totally distraught and destroyed over what's happened here? You know, it, it just, and maybe also it's, it's just a metaphor of how, um, you know, Abbott comes in and is like, don't worry, my child, I'll take care of it from here. Go, here's this baby leave um while he's literally cleaning up all like the bodies and everything like that to happen at this place um so i it, it's it's so interesting how these characters kind of weaved in and out of the story and it wasn't always super consistent like after like abbott helped out with you know the the the, the aftermath of the ghost trap and everything I wasn't mm -hmm. expecting Abbott to come again. And I definitely wasn't expecting Abbott to kind of be the, the end shift of the last hour, 40 minutes of the film. Yeah. So it was, it was very interesting having these characters weave in and out. It was like, like literally like watching a TV show where you're like, Oh, that dude from season one is back, you know, yeah. where it was so interesting to kind of see it. And there, there's just so many different types of characters. And it was really interesting how, how many, how much of time that they took to introduce these characters? Like, oh yeah, this is a fortune teller. And then like maybe an hour later, I'm like, that was the fortune teller. They announced it an hour ago, yeah, yeah. you know? So I, I think it, it almost was very play-like. It felt like a, like a, a play being transcribed on like to a TV show, especially like with the way that people just came in and out and stuff. It felt exactly. like one big set and everyone just kind of went behind the curtains only to come back out an hour later. Exactly. Mm. That's how exactly I felt. It felt like a play. That's interesting. Did you recognize the actor that played the abbot? You know, I kept looking at him and I'm like, he looks familiar, but I don't know. I couldn't pinpoint it. I was like, he does look incredibly familiar. Why? Is it going to be like, am I going to have one of those? Oh, of course moments. I hope so. I mean, because about 10, 15 years after this, so he, well, he looks basically the same, but obviously about 10, 15 years older. He's Lao Che in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. <gasps> no <laughs> shot! <laughs> wow. What? Yeah, that whole opening scene in, in Shanghai at the, uh, at the, at the nightclub, that's, uh, that's him. Oh, man. That that's is... So cool. You know, it, it's, it's, it was just one of, I just, I swear, I was like, I know that dude. Like, I, it was just one of those things I couldn't, like, it was so familiar, but wow, like, as soon as you said that, yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, no, that's the guy. Yeah. He's, <laughs> uh, yeah, and he's, uh, he, he was in, it wasn't the only American film he was in, actually. He popped up in a few other things. I think he's in some Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Oh, and, uh, awesome. We have to look into so, that stuff. Mm -hmm. but yeah, so and I think like, I mean, like King Hu, I think he was someone who actually emigrated to the US because King Hu ended up uh, dying in the US and living out his final years over there. And so... Um, oh, well, so, is yeah, there but, a... Well, I'm trying... What would be 
Well, did he immigrate from um, Hong Kong or from Taiwan? King who? Yeah. Well, I mean, he was born in China. He was born in Beijing and he just kind of moved around a lot. So he was in Hong Kong for a long time. And, you know, people here take some degree of ownership of him. Uh, he's, I think he's considered Taiwanese just because that's where he did the bulk of his best work. And I think that's why Ang Lee, who is also Taiwanese, has such an affinity for him. Uh, but then, yeah, towards the end, like the, the last sort of decade of his life, uh, he lived in uh, in California, I think. And um, it was quite sad, actually. He never he never quite got, he always had film projects. He wanted to make, uh, his big pet project was about the Chinese laborers who built the railways in the US. And he wanted to make this big epic there and nobody would finance it. And then right at the very end of his life, he actually got financing um, in the US. That sucks. That sucks. And, and it all was coming together. And then, um, and then, and then he died just before he was able to actually uh, actually get it done. It's really quite sad at the end. There's a recent documentary that just came out all about him called The King of Wuxia, uh, which is a two-part sort of four-hour documentary all about him. And it's absolutely brilliant. If you get the opportunity to see that, and it will probably show up on a streaming platform at some point. Very For cool. Sure. Now, uh, do because it's. Uh, it's oh, I'm great. so sorry. Continue, continue. No, no, no. I was just going to say, do do watch it if you get the chance because it is great and it will uh, tell you all you need to know about him and his work and his uh, his life as well. It was fantastic. Okay, cool. Definitely check it out. Um, now, a question I had for you because I feel like you'll probably know more about this than I could look up in a matter of minutes. Um, was I've heard that there has been conflict with China and Taiwan. Um, oh as, yes. In in recent histories, now was that something that could have been potentially prevalent, or maybe you know, at the time of the filming of this movie, was there any type of like that type of um conflict occurring then? Uh, yes, I mean, I'm not the greatest expert on Chinese history, but essentially what happened is you had World War Two during which time um, Taiwan was occupied by the Japanese and for the duration, as as um, as was Hong Kong. Uh, and obviously, uh, Japan had its own war sort of almost separate to World War Two going on with the Chinese as well during that period as well. Um, then there was the Chinese Revolution. After World War II, there's the Chinese Revolution where Mao Zedong and his Communist Party essentially drove out the, the current um, government and rulers, and they fled to Taiwan. And they took a whole bunch of stuff with them and a bunch of people with them, and they went and set up camp in Taiwan and had their own kind of thing going on there and declared themselves to be a separate entity, a separate country, which exists to this day. So, But China refuses to recognize it. Right. And it's a real hot button issue they mm. you, they do not like to even talk about it but the us and you know other superpowers do recognize taiwan as a foreign country you know as a separate country but china absolutely doesn't and it has been incredibly volatile ever since so for about the last 60 years and then within taiwan there's been their own things going on because obviously when this new chinese government came in um there was resistance to that and then there was their own sort of paranoia about you know communists being there and spies being there you know on you know, working for Mao and the Chinese government uh, and so there was a period of time in 
Taiwan, what's, which is called the the White Terror, where it was actually pretty, uh, you know, traumatizing living living in Taiwan through that period. You know, there were sort of secret police, sort of rooting out communists. Essentially, they you know, they got very paranoid once they'd arrived there, and they were very anti-intellectual and, and this kind of stuff. It was I, I'm not 100 percent clear on the details, but it's something that uh, you can see in King Hu's films, definitely in this movie, that there is a certain sort of anti-authority sensibility going on. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the bad guys are the, are the people in power, right? That's uh, sort of the authorities. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the noble heroes are the intellectuals and, you know, the pure of heart and the, and the religious. And that is definitely sort of an, an, an allusion to, uh, to what was going on in Taiwan at the time. But yes, yeah, suffice to say that, yes, it's still a very, very um, volatile topic, uh, the relationship between China and Taiwan today. Yeah, because I was just wondering if, if also, because um, I've, I've known like within recent years and like just talking to you about with like Hong Kong and, and, and the issues with mainland China and everything like that, mm. if, um, if there were like similar um, issues, but it, it just seems like, um, and it, it, I feel like it is a little bit similar. Of course, it's, it's different, um, still overall, um, in terms of like how we got there and everything and like how both issues kind of arose. But I, I feel like, um, Taiwan, like anytime I've heard of like, uh, you know, talking about China, I do feel like, oh, Taiwan has just been kind of brought up in the mix. So I've, I've vaguely heard about this, but I, I wasn't sure if this was something that, was affecting you know filmmakers and things like that and just people overall during this type of uh time period yeah well it's one of those things it's like uh yes and certainly sort of someone like king who who was you know an artist and an academic and you know he was he was an intellectual who had very strong opinions on these things uh will always find ways to uh explore these ideas in their in their work in their films Either, you know, especially almost if it has to go uh, under the radar of strict censorship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, kind of part of the fun, if you like, years after the fact is, is trying to look for those uh, motifs and those messages in films that on the surface appear to be fairly innocuous and yeah, cause I'm sure it, it, they couldn't be loud and proud about it, you know, back in the day with everything, if they wanted right. to be Absolutely a successful not. movie. Absolutely not. No. And you're seeing in Hong Kong movies right now, which is, and it's actually quite interesting. I was talking to a colleague about this yesterday, uh, that obviously we're at a point in Hong Kong right now where you've got this national security law, which has come in, which essentially says you can't criticize the government. You can't criticize the police. You can't do anything like that. This has all been in the wake of the protests. Uh, but it's also very vague in its wording of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Uh, and that's deliberately. So it's, it's deliberately vague so that people self-censor. It's like, well, shall I say this? Well, I better not just in case. And, um, wow. you know, and it's obviously putting uh, restrictions on on the free press that we're supposed to have here and things like that. Um, and what, what you're seeing is that in films that have been coming out just this year, you know, I watched a new film last night, actually, um, where filmmakers are able to put these ideas into their movies without having characters stand up and talk about them. So the big the big theme at the moment is just the general sense of anxiety and ill at ease 
uh, amongst the Hong Kong people and just the uncertainty about the future and the you know their own future and the future of of Hong Kong because no one really knows what's happening at the moment. No one really knows what how this is going to play out, where it's going. We know that eventually we will get sort of um, subsumed into, sort of sucked into mainland China and just become another city in China. That's not supposed to happen for about another twenty five years, but since the protest, it's been fast tracked, but in very sort of non-specific ways. And so uh, there's this general real, real sort of sense of uneasiness at the moment in Hong Kong people. And uh, that's difficult to express and illegal to express outright mm-hmm. in, in, in movies or music or poetry or whatever. But uh, you can, you know, you tell stories set in different periods and have ca- or, or in different uh, con- contexts, just where the main characters are, uncertain about about their future and what are just worried about uh, what's going to happen and it's been it's been interesting seeing how filmmakers have been sort of uh, hopscotching around those uh, those very vague and unclearly defined uh, censorship issues at the moment that is wow. it, it's still something though that like it's so crazy to me because you know my brain is is very simple and it's like but the contract there's an agreement you gotta abide by the agreement and and the fact that it's very much a oh like we can just no like you know like we'll we'll start enforcing some stuff now like uh, you know even though the agreement yeah like officially doc you know on documents yeah but like the, the transformation starts now is is kind of insane yeah it's all starting to creep in for sure. I mean, and the only per- the only people who would be in any position to try and enforce it are the British government. <laughs> you know, who are the who are the other half of the agreement, and they're they've obviously got no interest in doing that because it would just seriously compromise their relationship with uh, China, and and nobody wants to do that. China is so powerful right now, mm-hmm, right? That uh, they'd rather just be like, oh, okay, well, you 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 know, you, you, you deal with it as best you can. Yeah. Yourself. They'd rather not look at it and be like, Oh, that happened. Didn't know. Well, too mm-hmm. late, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. Yeah. But one interesting thing, just to talk about Taiwan again, very quickly is, is one thing is at the moment is that, um, you've got to be very careful how you talk about Taiwan on like, uh, the radio and things like that, because, uh, certainly as far as China is concerned, they do not recognize Taiwan as a separate country. So there are very specific guidelines in place now on like public radio because the radio station that I work for, for example, is essentially government funded. It's it's public radio. Mm-hmm. And there is very specific guidelines about what you can say and what you can't say. And you cannot refer to Taiwan as a country. Wow. Uh, so was, if, um, if, if you were to review like a movie, like how would you have to go about that? Yeah, like, would you the, just say, the... would you have to say like a specific city or would you like call it, is it called by a specific region name? Well, you can talk about you can talk about Taiwan, and you can talk you can refer it to it as the the island, you know, and, and things uh-huh. and and by name and things like that. But you just the thing you can't call it is a is a country. You can't identify it as a separate country to China. Do you remember um, John Cena? About a couple of years ago, I think he was doing the it was during COVID. He was doing the publicity tour for I think it must have been Fast Nine, the last one, not the not the new one, but the one before that, and. I think on one of at a press conference or on one of his TikTok videos or something, he referred to Taiwan as a country. He said, "Oh yeah, we're coming to China and we're going to release the 
the the uh, movie in uh, you know Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, and other countries in the area, something like that. Yeah, I vaguely and... remember it because of the fact that it also turned like I don't know if it was before or after, but something around that time turned into a meme where it's him eating ice cream, and it was it became like the <laughs> the, the, the Bing Chilling like meme that went I around. It was literally sure. around that time. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, that's yeah, no, probably all to do with the same thing because basically he got roasted on uh, on social media for that, and so very quickly had to issue an apology. And he did his apology in Mandarin. Oh, uh, because he had worked God. he had worked in China before. I think I think it, during his wrestling days, and he had made a movie with with Jackie Chan there a couple of years before as well. And um, and his Mandarin apparently is all right. I mean, I, mine's not good enough to know whether his is any good or not. <laughs> but he then gave this apology in Mandarin saying, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. Uh, sorry to disrespect you. I really love the Chinese people, you know, blah, blah, blah. And just apologizing over and over and over again. And that was the reason is because for the simple fact that he referred to Taiwan as a country. Wow. That's insane. Wow. And I know like um, there's been, you know, I, I feel like with essentially like Hong Kong, China and Taiwan, one of the big things that I've heard is uh, like, you know, Jackie Chan kind of like selling himself out to mainland China, essentially. Mm. And yeah, just, one. just denying or just, just not even denying, but completely being oblivious to Hong Kong and Taiwan and just pumping out content only for mainland China. Uh, yes, he's, he is not our favorite son these oh. days. That's certainly true. You know, he's, um, his movies don't make any money here anymore if they even get released and uh, yeah, people have, pretty much sort of uh uh cut ties with him just the general public i mean you know his mm-hmm. his fans if you like just because he they feel that he has turned his back on on hong kong and that he is only interested in you know mainland china and just making making money yeah right well he's also been yeah. in some hot water over time for i know that he has like two children and he's definitely been in hot water for how he's talked about one of them oh my um, gosh I saw a whole like video about like the weird like relationship he has with his son and how yeah. his son's gone. Like I I've seen a lot of things about like his family life. It's it's definitely very intense from what I understand. Obviously, I remember there was an incident about it's probably about a decade ago now where his son J C Chan uh, got busted in China for smoking weed at like yeah. a, a sauna with another with another young Taiwanese actor actually. And uh, they both got arrested and Jackie Chan refused to like pay his bail or even go and visit him or or pull any strings to get him out or anything like that. Just said, no, he's got to learn. He's got to do his time. And on the one hand, I, I can respect that kind of parenting, but he did it in such a way that he was he was doing it to curry favor with the authorities. And, yeah. you know, take the moral high ground yeah. as publicly it, as possible. It wasn't anyway. a learning lesson for his son. It was it was more of no. like a publicity stunt in a way. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I think he has other children, like maybe even sort of illegitimate children with other people. I mean, what's been interesting is because I do still have to watch a bunch of his movies. And one of the things you see crop up again and again in his new stuff is that his character is like a bad father. And is atoning for being a bad father what? and has kind of, well, it's the fact that, you know, there's often like an adult child who surfaces and he hasn't been there for them because, because he always puts his work first. And often he's like a soldier or something like that. You know, he puts country first, uh, even at the expense of 
mother and child and and over the course of the movie he has to kind of like atone for that as well as save the day well and it's it's kind of uh what's that yeah like a little apology? on the nose like <laughs> like, well, like interesting because what i've heard is that his his daughter he's like no contact with because she's gay oh yeah okay yeah that rings a bell yeah that he i, mean, I, she, I think she ended up moving either to europe or um to the u.s and she got married to a woman and literally uh like jackie chan was like yeah i don't talk to her anymore because that's it's like what like you know like it, it's just he seems like just an old grump and i i actually saw a after michelle yao won the oscar I saw yeah. a interview for, with her, like, and this was, it had to be a 20 year old interview. And, you know, the interviewer was going, oh yeah, and Jackie Chan, blah, blah, blah. And she, on the interview, like called Jackie Chan a chauvinistic pig, like flat yes. out. Oh yes, said, I saw that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And was like, oh yeah, like he, he thinks women should be in the kitchen and, but, and then she says, that I mean, she'll like, you know, throw a fist at him and he goes, but not Michelle. Yeah, I mean, they are definitely, I mean, or certainly were, you know, old friends. He gave her her big break. So I think certainly how she contextualized that is, is it's playful. It's banter between mm-hmm. two old buddies. Uh, but but I think there's truth in it. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, and it doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all that, yeah, he's by all, he, by all accounts, that is him. He's very sort of old school in that regard and uh, and not a, not a particularly nice person. Uh, and with the stuff regarding his daughter, th- that also seems to just sort of play, he's just, are playing into the uh, uh, the perspectives of of the the Chinese, certainly the Chinese government. They don't have a very uh, positive opinion of homosexuality and that yeah, kind of thing right. in the in the mainland. So it all just feels like it's a play. Everything is everything is very sort of uh, fake and engineered just to curry favor with with the the masses in mainland China. And uh, his critics are just seeing straight through it all and are not having any of it. Very crazy stuff. Well, before we wrap up this podcast, I just want to make sure, Savannah, was there anything else that you wanted to touch about on uh, A Touch of Zen? Yeah. Um, so last last question I have for James. Do you think this is, uh, obviously I think you've seen more films by this director than obviously we mm. have, but do you think this is his best film? Okay, that's, yeah, that's not an easy question to answer, really. I think in many ways, this is the kind of the summation of everything that he wanted to achieve. I think if you look at the films he made before this, they were building towards something bigger and something more profound. And if you look at the films he made after this, they're kind of more like this, uh, but never quite, I think, land as as strongly as as this one does um so the easy short answer is yes probably is it the best is it the best entry point into the filmography of king who probably not actually and 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 for that i apologize (laughs) for making (laughs) you do this one first because it is it is a big ask it is it is a lot to uh to come into cold um, if anybody, including yourselves, uh, are interested in getting a taste for uh, for King Who, Dragon Inn, I think, is is a perfect entry point. It's ninety okay. minutes. It's action packed. It's pretty straightforward. As I said, it's many of it of the 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 narrative tropes and the structure and what have you. I feel like a western, so you know where you are. 
with it. It's got a far clearer plot and what have you. Uh, the, the funny thing is that um, uh, what, what's what's the fella's name? I've, I've moved my page away now. Um, Shi Chun, who plays Mister Gu mm-hmm. in this, who is like the the least able uh, fighter in the movie, is actually a hugely accomplished martial artist, and he plays sort of the male lead in Dragon Inn and is sort of the biggest badass in 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 the country oh, and that's that. that's his character so um so that's kind of like a fun flip uh, like uh, defying audience expectations making him this sort of bookish intellectual in a touch of zen um suffice to say yeah if you if you want to watch another one and i know it's very easily available is dragon in and i think people who are coming to his work for the first time dragon in is 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 a great place to start and then I'd maybe say even do come drink with me after that and then come on to a touch of Zen if you're still if you're still on board at that stage. Yeah. Well, just to let you know, so even though that this was a hefty film, we did watch at one point the original 47 Ronin and it's four hour. Oh, so <laughs> we were kind of I personally think that touch of Zen was way better paced um but of course we're comparing a 1941 film to a 1971 film so it feels like you know they definitely had time to figure out the pacing and everything like that with these types of movies um but yeah so 47 ronin because i was like no i remember 47 ronin being long and i looked it up and it says it's four hours long so um but i think this was such a it for how different this movie was it really was such a a, a unique epic you know i feel like that there's so many and and you you specifically said that there was a genre for this type of film what was it again it's called wuxia so it's w-u-x-i-a and that just means sort of a sort of period action movie gotcha so for the wuxia types of films i feel like you know a lot of them and you were saying that like you know Taiwan, China at the time and things like that, were kind of just pumping these out left and right. And you can definitely see how um, unique Touch of Zen was um, for the time and everything to just be so encapsulating of many different genres in one go of a movie um, is, is pretty incredible. So I thoroughly, even though it was a wild ride, I thoroughly enjoyed watching Touch of Zen. And I do want to check out Dragon Inn because Dragon Inn seems right up my alley for sure i think this movie also has i'm a big uh rewatchable person so i grade on this channel about like okay can i rewatch this i probably can rewatch this multiple times a year because i feel like every time i rewatch it i'll probably get something each time like oh, okay like this this thing about spirituality like okay like i'll focus on this or or the relationship between mr goo and the assassin i think they're the the movie is so multi-dimensional that you can rewatch this multiple times and enjoy it and get something out of it so i really like that aspect of the movie um but yeah excellent well i'm, I'm glad you both did like it i hope you're not just telling me what i want to hear <laughs> <laughs> no i um, mean for for a movie this long to like actually say that like not only savannah but i agree too that i would like to rewatch this film because i do feel like that yeah, there are some great. things i miss is, is not many people can make a three-hour film you know 
lately yeah. and and just you have that be like no i want to watch it again because i feel like even in the three hours i might have missed something it is a pretty incredible quality so um and also i watched it with my boyfriend who's not really like a huge movie buff or anything like that and he really really enjoyed it as well too okay well that's that's great that's great um yeah i mean and that's why i think certainly in in asia when crouching tiger hidden dragon came out uh everybody loved it so much because not only was it a hong kong taiwanese co-production just like these movies are but everyone watched it and were just like oh he's just made a king who movie mm-hmm. right and so you know seeing it in the west it was kind of like a novelty and you know people were just embracing it for being just sort of this beautiful old school kind of uh, martial arts epic whereas uh, for audiences in this part of the world, very specifically, it was like, oh, well, this is a love letter to the man who made Come Drink With Me, Dragon Inn, and A Touch of Zen, writ large, you know, with the biggest stars of the day in it. Yeah, and it was it was so awesome having you um, on here again and promise it's not going to be a three-year gap (laughs) like how it was uh but thank you so much james for you know hopping on once again and so um where can people find you of course i'll link it below but you are i think it's uh, is is it james i think it's like marshy is that what your twitter handle is my my twitter is just marshy zero zero m-a-r-s-h-y zero zero and that is pretty much my handle everywhere uh Oh, yeah, so there's that on Instagram as well. Um, I have just started uh, posting things on Blue Sky, where I think I'm just James Marsh on Blue Sky. I uh, haven't tried threads yet. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and even Facebook, you know, just search my name, James Marsh in Hong Kong <laughs> on Facebook, and, and you'll find <laughs> me pretty easily enough if, you, if you're still doing Facebook. Uh, and then I have a, a YouTube channel. Uh, with my good friend Steve and we do uh, movie related reviews and chat and stuff and yeah it's two middle-aged white men talking about <laughs> stuff but and it's, it's deep but, dive movie reviews right and that's that's exactly it perfect um yeah so thank you so much for joining and as always yes. for our um listeners thank you so much for listening and just to go through even though we have our one of our patreon members here homeboy james <laughs> as always thank you so much to our other patreon members um like uh sensei david we have um our buddy ryan we have danny boy and we have manny romero so thank you guys so much for supporting the channel um please 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 be sure to check out all the links below and support all of james's endeavors as well too because what he does is really really cool um and yeah thank you guys so much for listening and we will see you next time bye-bye bye thank you bye-bye